Hi, I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up with a relentless wave of content between movies and TV. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. Today, we have the first of two episodes taking in the year that was in 2018. First up, the year in movies. From Black Panther to Leave No Trace, Burning to First Reformed, if Beale Street could talk to Zama, Roma, The Favorite, Support the Girls, and many more, this was a great year at the movies if you knew where to look. This week, I'm joined here by our film critics, Kenneth Duran and Justin Chang. The both of you just published your top 10 plus lists for the the year. I, I published a list of my own. And so I thought maybe one way to get started, instead of talking in the specific about some of the movies that we had, both of you had some sort of bigger picture ideas about the year that was. Kenny, you noted in the piece that you wrote that you see there as being kind of four groups of movies blockbusters, independent films, foreign films, and documentaries, and that it was an exceptional year in all those categories. Can you talk a little bit about what it was that made this year sort of stand out for you? Well, you know, I mean, there were good films, you know. I mean, the the life of a critic is very simple. If the films are good, you're happy. See, I see a smile on your face. You know it's true, you know. There were really good films in all categories. Well, I can't help but notice in the four quadrants that you described that there's big studio blockbusters, and that's all you have the studios doing. It's interesting to me that Widows in particular was released by 20th Century Fox, Big Fox, Big Fox. and not released by Fox Searchlight, who may very well have had a little better idea yes. of what to do with a movie like that, even though it would be an enormously budgeted film for Searchlight. And so another film that I think is on both of your lists, Can You Ever Forgive Me, Marla Heller film that stars Melissa McCarthy as the letter forgerer and writer Lee Israel. That movie is made with what is a tiny budget by studio standards, has been released by Fox Search, and is doing, you know, moderate business at this sort of specialized box office, but feels like the kind of mid-range film that you feel like you wish you saw more of, and that in some ways you wish that Hollywood knew what to do with a movie like that a little better. Studios don't know how to handle things in this day and age that don't have superheroes or comic books behind them. And that movie is such a gem. I mean, it's in my, you know, the numbers and the rankings are so arbitrary. I think we can all maybe feel that way. It was such a staggeringly good year. Things from like my so-called kind of honorable mentions could easily have swapped in with any of my top 10 or 20 or however many I put down. And Can You Ever Forgive Me is absolutely one of them. And it's the kind of movie that, you know, it's it's doing well. And I think, you know, it, Richard E. Grant is getting a lot of attention. Melissa McCarthy very deservedly as well. You almost wish that movie had come out earlier or in a less competitive time when it could really spread its wings. I mean, it makes sense. It premiered at Toronto. And, or was it a Telluride as well? I think it might have so. been. Yeah. So it played the Fall Festival circuit. And then, you know, it's a very standard kind of run. But I think we're seeing now, especially just this glut of movies. I mean, another just to take an example, another on my list, Fox Lux, which, you know, is, is a much more polarizing movie, but a really interesting and bold one. And that is, you know, opened in December or was it end of November? I can't remember. But it's like in this huge glut of movies that just even something that is as personal and risky a movie as that has no room to breathe. You know, I'm I mean, it's just crazy because we've all know examples of films that broke the mold, that opened early in the year, were huge successes, won Oscars. I mean, this is a business where everyone is terrified. People don't want to do anything that goes against the norm because if you go against the norm and it doesn't work, they fire you. They say, you should have known better. So people would rather see the film die in terms of the studios. They'd rather see the film die than take the risk of putting them in another slot. And in terms of the films themselves, everyone knows that films are going to get lost in the fall. Everyone knows that they're going to get lost, especially 
especially in December, but every producer says to him or herself, yes, I know this is true, but it's not going to happen to my film. My film will break through the clutter. My film will rise <laughs> to the top. And a certain percentage of these people are deluding themselves. And if they were more realistic, their films would do better. Something I try to do as well for my own sanity and also just because I think it's philosophically right is I do keep a running top 10 or just top list throughout the year. If something I see strikes me as this is has a good shot at being one of the best movies of the year or it being in the conversation. And a lot of those made my list this year, like First Reformed, like Zama, like Black Panther, like The Writer. I just keep that list going because it's like you try to combat the tendency to think that, as Kenny says, only the last half of the year or even the last quarter of the year is when is the only time when good movies can be released. And that's just a shame that that is the paradigm still. Because maybe I'll, I'll ask the two of you a little bit about sort of list making in specific. Kenny, do you think about the way, like the sort of grand statement that you're making when you release your year end list? Like how conscious are you of what it means to have the sort of group of movies on that list that you put there? You know, the truth is not really. I mean, I, what I think about is I think it makes a kind of a statement, at least in my mind, what my top film is, what the number one film is. Past that, I don't try to have them be a coherent whole. I don't kind of shape it as a kind of a thing in and of itself. It's just the films I like. And sometimes I'm surprised what they are once I've listed them out. But I'm not trying to make a statement with the list. I'm just trying to get people to watch the films that we think they're going to like. And that's partly what I do on the list. I say, you know, look at this film. You'll like it, you know. Really? <laughs> Justin, are you are you thinking about what your list yeah. means as you're putting it together? Maybe a little bit. My methodology has changed over the years a lot. I mean, I used to be kind of a purist where I would only have 10 and they would be in a very strict, <laughs> clear order from, you know, most passionate to least passionate, very strictly ranked. And I just sort of have thrown that out of the window. I think it's ridiculous to be that self-serious about it. My top one or two are usually pretty set in stone. Like, yes, these are the movies that if I had to abandon everything else, I would want to keep these. But starting with last year and then this year, I became sort of enamored of this idea. And maybe I was inspired by Kenny because Kenny is really good at grouping titles. And I think it's a generous way to look at movies and one should be generous. I mean, and especially in a year as good as this one, I just started pairing my movies, definitely all of which I felt were worthy of being mentioned in the top 10 or 20. But I just, thematic connections are interesting. It always interests me when movies are kind of speaking to another and kind of perversely, for example, putting Zama with Black Panther. Zama, which, you know, the craft services budget on Black Panther was probably bigger than the budget or the, or the gross for Zama, you know, but I, I love that idea and thinking that, you know, these are two completely different movies, one made by an Argentinian woman, another made by an African-American man that I think are so different and yet kind of getting at some of the interesting issues about oppression. And, and you can do that in an art film and you could do that in a genre movie. And I also just want to say, like, everyone saw this movie. You probably haven't seen this one. Check it out. So I, there was kind of a sometimes a sort of perverse fun that you get in sort of putting together things that are likely and then maybe putting together things that are not likely at all. Well, Lucretia Martel's Zama is a movie I'm very fond of as well. I had that movie at number two on my own list. And it's interesting to me that I notice that I think between the three of us, there are three movies that are on all of our lists. And they are Black Panther, Black Klansman, and Leave No Trace. Now, Kenny, you have as your sort of tied number one and two, Black Panther and Leave No Trace, Ryan Coogler's superhero film, and then also a, a much smaller movie in Leave No Trace. Now, tell me a little bit about what it is that you kind of like brought those two movies together. Well, they're the two movies that I could watch either of those movies again and again and again. They are, to me, epitomes in terms of big studio blockbuster. I think Black Panther is like off the charts. We all feel that. I think everyone feels that. So this is a, as good as that kind of movie is going to get. And I almost feel that Leave No Trace, for me, in terms of these kind of 
thoughtful, humanistic, and very involving independent films, real character studies. I mean, the first time I saw Leave No Trace, I was practically at the edge of my seat. I was so worried about the characters. And what I found was fascinating. I ended up seeing it a second time. I was as worried the second time, even though I knew exactly what was going to happen, because the filmmaking is so good and the characters are so involving. And to me, you can't, you can't buy that kind of stuff, you know. And again, I paired those two for a similar reason as what Justin did. Say, look, maybe you all know about Black Panther, but maybe you haven't seen Leave No Trace. Maybe you've heard about it and haven't quite gotten around to it and say, you know, this is really good. It's something, you know, again, I don't believe in things in some ways that are good in uh, kind of some kind of platonic sense or Aristotelian sense. These are things that people will enjoy. I really believe that passionately. And Justin, do you want to talk a bit more about Leave No Trace? It was directed by Deborah Granick, who was sort of got a lot of attention for Winter's Bone, for which was nominated for Best Picture, got a Best Actress nomination for then essentially unknown Jennifer Lawrence and really launched her to stardom. And this new film, and this is the first fiction feature she's made since then, almost 10 years ago now. And what is it about that movie that for you was special? Yeah, I mean, this one, again, cracked my honorable mentions territory, but <laughs> these things are so not set in stone. But Deborah Granick, who won Best Director from the LA Film Critics Association, of which we are all members, beating out Alfonso Cuaron for Roma, kind of remarkably, I thought. And I thought that was just a testament to the affection in the room for Deborah Granick and just the great filmmaker that she is and also for the movie. It's worth noting, too, it's been an extraordinary year for female directors. And I just feel like coming right out and saying that. And what's interesting, too, is that for me, it just occurred to me it's occurred to me throughout the year, but especially looking at my list when I realized, oh, there's so many. And it's like no no one had to strain to make note of that excellence or to squeeze more. It's just like it's effortless. Like, no, these are the best films I saw this year. And whether it's Deborah Granick or Tamara Jenkins for Private Life, which was at number five for me, both those movies, interestingly, premiered at Sundance, Leave No Trace and Private Life, and both marked really long overdue returns by these two female directors, Tamara Jenkins and Deborah Granick, who for various reasons, and not all of them industry sexism, but that's part of it, I think for probably both of them. But they were also just, these are very unhurried filmmakers. They take their time. They find the stories. And they take enormous care, as you can see in the details, you know, whether that's the way, just the quality of the writing in Private Life or just the way Deborah Granick films a nature shot and leave no trace. I mean, it's just those movies create worlds. And it's funny because even though I guess you could classify these as small films, they feel really big and enveloping when you're watching them. If I could really quickly jump in on Black Panther because that movie, I think I've seen it three times now. And the first time I saw it, I really liked it, but it just got better and better, which is remarkable for a movie where you know what's happening. You you know, action scenes, okay, it's another action scene, whatever, but it, of course the action scenes are not what you take away from that movie necessarily. The emotional depth of the movie just gets bigger and bigger for me every time I saw it. And with that movie, it's almost like there is something held against it because it's a superhero movie, because it's a Marvel movie. And that's why I think it's extraordinary that it's breaking through and that I think it's a very well-deserved fixture in the year-end conversation. Because I think there's a lot of maybe genre prejudice or genre snobbery against that movie that people hold against. And I think when you've seen Black Panther on people's top 10 lists, when you've seen Black Panther winning, you know, it hasn't won a ton of awards maybe from critics groups, but it's won a few. I got an text argument argument this weekend with a friend who was like, you're way too nice to Black Panther. It's like, it's just, it's just another, it's just an ordinary Marvel movie. It's just an ordinary. And I'm like, no, it's really not. It's justification for ending a friendship as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) And I want to be sure that we talk a little about the third movie that we all shared on our list, Spike Lee's Black Klansman, which is a movie that I think
think since it first premiered at the Cannes Film Festival this year has just really hung in there. I mean, it, it opened theatrically in late summer, I think in August, and it's just sort of like, and it's kind of come back around during the, the awards conversation. I think in particular, people always realizing the fact that Spike Lee is someone who just as celebrated of a filmmaker as he is, he just simply never celebrated quite enough. And it's particular from the Motion Picture Academy, the fact that he's never nominated for an Academy Award as a director. And then the fact that this movie is so exciting and I think has all the sort of like the energy and the passion that you want from him. It has a lot of surprises to it. I think the tone of it really catches you off guard that it feels so funny and satirical, but then can hit you with these very hard emotional wallops that he so smartly includes even a critique of film history in the film canon within just slips that in to the side of the movie. It's just a wonderful thing. Kenny, what is it that you like about Black Lantern? Well, one of the things that struck me when, when you know, when Justin and I saw it at Cannes and it uh, still stays with me, he did something organically that sounds like an add-on, but he managed to, you know, work in at the end what happened in Charlottesville, which was not, I think, part of the original plan of the movie because Charlottesville hadn't happened when they originally planned the movie. And he just had this idea that it all fits together. And he was correct. The mother of the woman who was killed at Charlottesville, he called her up and said, I want to do this. Is it okay with you? You know, he wasn't just like some glib thing he did. He thought a lot about it. But it gives that story, if we're tempted to see, well, this is an old story. We're past this. We're not as bad as we used to be about race. He's saying, well, no, this is not so. This is still a big problem. And I think being able to kind of seamlessly join the past and the present and have them feed each other, that's one of the things that makes the film so exciting. I completely agree with Kenny, especially with the end. I mean, there's more to the movie than that culmination, of course. I think what's really what really works about it is that he finds ways to be didactic and even dialectical in terms of in the way that he kind of opposes the movie's different factions in a way that just wells up pretty organically out of the story, even though there has been dispute over the, the veracity of the story or the direction of the film's perspective. I also just think it's funny. I know a lot of the praise has been swirling around John David Washington, and maybe it's not the most politic thing to say, but I think Adam Driver gives the best performance in this movie and one of his best performances ever. I think just the transformation that that character undergoes is really, really remarkable. But that ending, I keep wanting to come back to it because speaking about movies that we see again and again and still retain their power, I mean, I remember seeing it with Kenny at Cannes and feeling like it just really hits you in the face. And then I saw it again at just the little Wilshire screening room to a fairly packed audience and it hit me even harder. There's something about the way he takes this footage, which we've all seen on YouTube or on, on the news, and putting it on the big screen and color correcting it and making that horrible footage look big screen worthy, which is, and some people, of course, really reject that and they found it exploitative. I don't think it is, or rather if, I, if it is, I think it's a necessary kind of exploitation because there's something powerful about taking this footage we've all seen and putting it in a movie theater and forcing you to look at, yes, this is Trump's America and it's the same America as the events that we've seen in this movie. And it's absolutely devastating. Well, the way that the movie grapples with both history and the present is I think that something that Spike Lee has been doing for many years. I recently was at a screening of his movie Malcolm X, and I think it's easy to forget the opening credit sequence of that movie features footage of the Rodney King incident. And that way in which he's been connecting kind of our past to our present is something he's been involved in all throughout his career. Justin, I want to sort of like continue the thread of sort of the idea of like small movies, quote unquote, that are in many ways aided by this year end conversation that we're having now. One movie that we both had on our respective list was Andrew Bajowski's Support the Girls, which has gotten a lot of attention. The actress Regina Hall, sort of in a somewhat of a surprise, was named Best Actress by the New York Film Critics Circle. And the movie's, I think, 
even its own distributor, Magnolia Pictures, did not necessarily expect to have an awards campaign for that movie. And the idea that just organically people seeing that movie, liking that movie, really responding to Regina Hall's performance. Do you feel like that's one of the benefits of this kind of like year end car crash of when everyone's trying to, you know, make their lists and show off and have the best of this and that, but that sometimes a movie like that can really benefit from from that? I really do. I mean, that movie, which made very little money and which hopefully is going to have a bit more of a second life now, perhaps or a third or whatnot is absolutely one of the clear benefits of this Derby AIDS. Only though if critics groups are singling out performances like this. I mean, uh, Regina Hall also did get an Indie Spirit Award nomination. Her co-stars Shayna McHale and Haley Lou Richardson are wonderful too. I think this is why I'm a big believer too in, I know that critics groups seek consensus, but I'm kind of a fan when people spread the wealth, when people don't just, you know, and, and yeah, we all, we're all kind of studying each other's notes and, oh, you pick that, I'm going to pick this. And it's a little, it's a little corrupt. I get, I totally get that. But I think it's exciting. Like the more, the merrier. There's so many great performances and so many great movies beyond just the Oscar front runners. And with Support the Girls, it was interesting. As I was making my list and trying to sort out my kind of tortured thematic groupings, I found like myself thinking of Support the Girls, is Widows, is The Favorite, is Madeline's Madeline, is Suspiria, a movie that didn't even make my list, but which I think is all this this idea of like, we're seeing women in solidarity or women in competition, which is maybe not so different. It's like, and this, you know, there was this theme for me in all these movies, all of which I liked to varying degrees, but which I think this does happen organically because I don't think anyone, you know, the timing of these movies is certainly not something that was orchestrated, but you're seeing a lot of movies where women, whether they're embodying ideals of friendship, of solidarity, or even of competition, there's this dismantling the patriarchy kind of theme that just was such a constant throughout. And I thought that was really powerful and it's exciting to see. And the movies themselves are really good, which is most important. And now I'm realizing there's actually a fourth title that the three of us have. Stop the pressure. On our respective lists. <laughs> Uh, and that is Alfonso Coron's Roma. And I think we all have it in various positions of moderate <laughs> respect on our our respective lists. And Kenny, for you, a movie like Roma that's coming in with so much expectation, so much hype around it and cultural conversation, the essentially a business conversation about who was releasing it and how one should watch it. Is it hard for you to sort of like put that noise outside of your head, first of all, when you're reviewing a movie and then when it gets to sort of like your year end appreciation? Right. Well, I could lie, Mark, and I could say, yeah, it was easy. I put it right out of my head. In fact, with this film, it was exceptionally difficult. Again, one of the things that I tell audiences a lot and that I feel is true for critics, to some extent with big films, where in the line of time you see it is going to affect how you feel about it. The most passionate people about Roma were the people who saw it first. And because again, by, even by the time I saw it, it was, I, I make it my business not to read about it, but I know that all the hubbub is out there and I know there's a, it's a big deal movie. It took me quite a while to adjust to how quiet it was and how soft it was and how not big movie it was. And I think absent that fuss, I wouldn't have had to wade through that. So the fuss definitely impacted me. And finally, I came to admire and like the film a lot by the end. But initially, this was not a done deal that, well, of course, I see why everyone loved this film. I do, too. I said, wait a minute. What's going on here? Justin, there are two very specific and somewhat competing conversations that have emerged around Roma. One is the fact that Netflix is releasing this movie and they are going against their own typical corporate practices to give it an expanded theatrical release, which they don't normally do. And there is a conversation about what is the best way to watch Roma, whether it's at home, whatever device you might have, or whether you should make the effort to go to a theater to see it. And then there's a secondary conversation that I also find interesting of who has the right to talk about Roma and who has the right in some ways to explain Roma 
because of the fact it's so is intended to be so culturally specific to the story that it's telling in Mexico City in the 1970s. How do you feel about those two kind of competing conversations that have emerged around the movie? Oh, boy, it's such a mess. And I've been eagerly reading everything about Roma because this is a movie that I think I saw it on that first wave. You know, not I saw it at Toronto, its first screening at Toronto, and it had just won the Golden Lion in Venice. So I don't know if that's the first wave or if the first wave has already crested and I'm on the second wave already. But I wrestled with the movie. I did not completely fall under its spell. I don't think I have yet, even though I think it's a formidable achievement and I could not put it in my kind of my honorable mentions at the end. But it's one that I wrestle with. And I think it goes to the heart of the complexity of the film, which the things you outlined, it it almost feels like the movie is part of this larger discussion about privilege, different kinds of privilege. It's weird because, you know, that's Netflix. Some people have, you know, a lot of critics have sort of said you have to see or not you have to see, but you really should see this movie in a theater if you can. And I completely agree with that. You really should in order to experience the full effect of it. And that opens this discussion that a lot of that Netflix has kind of been at the center of, which is, well, who are you to tell us? You know, sometimes first off, they're not making the movie widely available. Second, just ticket prices and everything. And a lot of people have been saying that it embodies this sort of snobbery or privilege to tell audiences the best way to experience a movie. And if we can watch it on our home screen, why shouldn't we? And so that's one debate. And I'm not, you know, know, that's a pathetic (laughs) argument. You know, I mean, would you say to someone, you know, if you have a choice, you can see, you know, a great painting, the actual painting, or you can see like a little tiny color reproduction that it's the same difference. And I just don't understand that argument. I think that's aesthetic mandates and prerogatives that the original way it's supposed to be seen is the best way. If you can see it that way, you know, I'd rather see a little tiny color reproduction of a great painting than nothing. It's not that you shouldn't bother, but to make believe that that, that that's just as good because you're making some greater, you know, socioeconomic, political, cultural point. I think from an aesthetic point of view, it's just nonsense. Justin, the, the second half of that privilege conversation, yeah, it as gets far as who the, gets to talk about who the gets movie. to talk about it, but also, and it goes to the movie itself, which is you know a lot. The, the discourse has been getting more interesting. The Roma discourse is still ongoing. People have been criticizing Quaron, and in a way, it's a little refreshing because I do think this movie should be subject to very tough scrutiny. I think it totally like any totally. movie should. You know, I do think that there has been something a little bit myopic about just the immediate consensus. This movie is a transcendent masterpiece, which I don't think it is. I think it's a very very good movie with some really interesting. issues. Issues, but people have been criticizing Cuaron as like, you know, saying he's, you know, as a white middle class Mexican man telling this woman's story, does he have the right to do that? Do we as American critics, you know, non-Latinx critics have the right to comment on this movie? And it opens up this whole issues that I find the discussion a little tedious. And it's like, yes, everyone should weigh in and we should absolutely listen and uplift the voices of critics and and journalists who who know this setting intimately and or who who bring you know cultural insights into the movie and also we should listen to people who have none of that who just have something really intelligent to say about the movie so it's like i think that quaron is very aware of his position of privilege in the story and he's very sensitive to that and he is trying imperfectly but very conscientiously to tell the story as best he can i have just some issues with the aesthetics of the movie and the way the position of the camera the way the shots are held to such duration and i like duration but i kept wrestling with just what am i looking at here. Kenny, do you have have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, the other thing is, you know, this notion is who has the right to comment, you know, always kind of strikes me again as just kind of an insane, I don't know how we get to a place in the culture where these are the arguments. You wouldn't be comfortable flipping it, saying that people can only write about themselves. The, the stay in your lane school and I'm yeah. not a fan of that school either and I think there's a very big difference between wanting to uplift and give exposure to voices we don't hear 
enough of and saying that white men shut up. I just and I wrote about this earlier this year and it's it's a very and I think some people don't make the distinction between those two, but they're worlds apart to me. You want everyone to, to be heard. I mean, and I think it's very, very true that people have had really horrifically unfair difficulty being heard. This is not a fake problem. This is a real problem, but that's what you want to do. You want to have everyone heard. You don't want to say only some people can be heard. You don't want to switch who the only is. That's not going to solve anything. And I want to be sure that we talk about one more movie in particular. It's a movie that, Kenny, you have on your list, Adam McKay's Vice, which is the story of uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney, as portrayed by Christian Bale. And it's a movie that, again, has the just the sort of like the as we're recording this conversation, the review embargo broke just a, a day or two ago. And so suddenly the discourse on this has really exploded. And it seems like it's a incredibly... Justin, I believe you coined the pun divisive. Movie. But Kenny, Kenny thought of it independently. It's it's out there, you know. It's it's in every great minds, you know. And, uh, <laughs> anyway, certain kind think, of minds. Anyway, and I think the two of you are maybe on somewhat opposite sides of the fence on this movie. So, Kenny, I will go to you first. What is it that for you is exciting about Vice, and what is it about this movie that is spurring the kind of like really fiery, passionate emotions from people that it is? I'm still in the process of writing. I haven't finished writing, so I'm aware of the negative stuff, but I haven't read it intensely. But, you know, I could see what people are unhappy. To me, I like it. I mean, it's a very partisan film. And I almost wish it wasn't such a partisan film, in part because it's bli- it seems to be blinding people to the things that I really like about the film. I'm not happy about it because it's partisan. I'm happy about it because it's very smart, energetic, kind of dazzling filmmaking. There are things it does that I really get a kick out of. You know, the film, it's not really giving anything away because you won't know when it happens. The film makes believe it's ending in the middle of the film and it runs credits and everything. You know, I mean, this is fun. This is someone who's thinking differently, who is just... Just bringing energy and pizzazz to filmmaking, and that's why I like it. You know, a lot of the dialogue is funny. The characterizations are funny. Would I say this is a rigidly accurate portrayal? I have no idea. You know, but that's not why I like it. And again, this is in the whole business of how accurate should films be is just kind of a... It's an endless debate. I think, you know, some are more accurate, some are less accurate. I really feel from my own experience, it's not possible for films to be completely accurate. But I don't go to this film for political accuracy or even to kind of glory in its partisanship. I love this film because I think it's exciting filmmaking. Yeah, I'm mixed on Vice. I definitely don't, you know, share the opinion held by some that it's like the worst movie of the year, which I saw some like takes to that effect the other day. <laughs> and it's like, you know, but I, I don't love it either. I mean, the Adam McKay school of recent kind of political satire just is operating on a wavelength that I'm just not attuned to that frequency. Because I didn't, you know, the big short, which I don't think was as divisive a movie, I think was a much more unanimously perhaps acclaimed movie. And I didn't like that either. And I think I maybe I even like Vice a little bit more, which is going against the grain a little bit, but Christian Bale's performance was pretty astonishing. Is it a great performance or is it a great piece of mimicry? I don't know. It's maybe just one or maybe it's both. I laughed when the, the, the credits sequence began midway and then I recoiled at other instances of humor where I do feel like he's sort of, there's nothing wrong with thumbing your nose, but I sometimes feel like he does it at the audience. It's a little bit contemptuous to me. I mean, I think the movie is quite serious minded in a lot of ways. I do think it, he takes his goal seriously as kind of agitprop filmmaking, but yeah, the sensibility is just not entirely my cup of tea. 
And before we wrap up, I, I had wanted to uh, be sure for all the movies that we have on our big lists here, I mean, dozens and dozens of titles. I know for myself, when I was making my own list, I still had movies that I couldn't quite fit onto the list. And so I want to give each of you completely outside of the list you've already done. Is there still some movie that is like uh, that you have affection for or that you wish you could have been that 31st slot on your list? <laughs> Kenny? Well, you know, I want to actually pull one out from, you know, because my, my second, my third 10 are so obscure. Some of these films no one has ever even heard of, let alone seen. And I wanted to put in, a, you know, a word for Puzzle, which was at Sundance last year. And it's just a quiet but completely involving little film. Kelly McDonald, who's a wonderful actress, never been a lead actress before. It's just a fascinating story, you know, very involving. And I'm just so happy these films are still able to get made. And I worry about their continued viability. I mean, I probably three people went to see this film in theaters. I don't know if it's going to have much of a life after theaters and I just worry that we're losing this class of movie if people don't patronize it and again these are things that people will like I think it's such an involving story you know female protagonist homemaker who finds out there's more in her life than she imagined it's just a wonderful story of empowerment to, to use a horribly overused word but it really is and it's a spectacular performance Justin, what for you would be that 31st movie? Before I answer that, I just realized I don't think I got to talk about my my number one. So, oh. which is really quickly, I'm going to say that. I'm not going to dwell on it. It's Burning, the South Korean film directed by Lee Chang-dong, who's one of my favorite filmmakers. And this movie, I saw at Cannes, and it just, it stayed at the top. It, it went to the top of that list that I have been keeping throughout the year, and nothing dislodged it. So that, um, I just love that movie. It's really been thrilling to see. It made the foreign language film Oscar shortlist, which I wasn't necessarily expecting it to. It's been nice to see the embrace. So I, I just adore that film and I hope a lot of people see it. As far as my 31st, I am going to mention a movie that premiered at Sundance that was decidedly not Puzzle. It's um, it's uh, it's Mandy, actually, which is not, you know, a movie that I didn't really write about in any, you know, in any way. I just, it was opening, it, it opened at a really busy time of year right before Toronto and it stayed in theaters for a while. And I don't know if I'm one of this movie's diehard fans because they are out there, but I love Nicolas Cage's performance. It is kind of the culmination of the weird gonzo kinds of performances he's been giving, but done in a way that I think actually has real dramatic purpose and coherence to it. Just the surrealism of the movie. A friend told me he's like, it's like a modern day like Beowulf. It's like this is like this blood poem of a movie I'm I'm stealing from from a friend because he described it so much better than I could. And I am so glad it exists. And it's my yeah, you can call it my 31 or my 41 or 51. I've made there's so many movies on my list, I don't even know what number I'm at anymore. And I'm gonna take this chance to talk about another movie that's opening on Christmas, that's uh, Karin Kusama's Destroyer. It's a hard-boiled L.A. noir crime picture where your sort of like tough-as-nails cop is played by Nicole Kidman. And that simply in and of itself just sort of like turns the entire genre on its head and makes for a movie that is just so smartly done and so refreshing and so exciting. It also features, for me, what was one of the most exciting action sequences of the year. There's like a bank heist shootout gone wrong turned to foot chase slash fist fight in an ice cream parlor that is one of the most, between Nicole Kidman and Tatiana Maslany, that's one of those astonishing pieces of filmmaking I saw this year and it like completely stands in the pantheon with the action sequences of, of Michael Mann and Catherine Bigelow. So I hope that people uh, take a chance to see Destroyer. And for LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening. Listener.